Hello, my name is Sarah Symes and I'm the founding chair of Amplify Change. On today's podcast, we are joined by Judy Gittell, the Africa Regional Coordinator for Equality Now, to talk about policy and law change for sexual and reproductive health and rights. Amplify Change first supported Equality Now's work in this area in 2017. Judy was one of the lead advocates in a lawsuit against the Sierra Leonean government at the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, at their Court of Justice for denying pregnant schoolgirls the right to education. Judy was part of the legal team that drafted the pleadings for court and acted as a guardian for the interests of the girls in court. She was also partly responsible for the programmatic work in Sierra Leone on legal advocacy and changing social norms by amplifying the voices of survivors, in this case, the voices of young girls, across different platforms, nationally in Sierra Leone, as well as regionally and globally. Judy joins us now from Nairobi in Kenya. Judy, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. Thanks, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Could you please describe the situation, the context, facing pregnant schoolgirls in Sierra Leone, and why Equality Now felt that this was an important problem to address. Well, Sierra Leone as a country was on our radar for quite a while. Having come from a background of conflict, um, sexual violence was quite rampant. And unfortunately, on the receiving end were women and girls, and mostly young girls, teenage girls. And so in the lead up to the Ebola crisis or the Ebola virus, where schools were closed and the few safe shelters that existed were closed, and and including um, places for organizations that would provide, for example, sexual and reproductive health and rights for women and girls were closed. We incrementally saw a number of girls getting pregnant. And by the time we were intervening, the number ranged from between 11,000 and 14,000 girls in a single year. And so it was it was drastic and we needed to intervene. And so we began, obviously, with the local organizations that we were partners with and that we enjoyed Amplified Changes support to, to engage with. And we worked with them towards directly engaging with government key actors, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Social Affairs, which at the time was linked to the Ministry of Education. And we engaged with the Attorney General's office. We engaged with different actors, even within non-state actors and civil society actors. And we were faced by closed doors throughout. And as time went by, these girls who had gotten pregnant and had fallen out of school were unable to come back at all. And so increasingly we were having this cycle where more and more girls were getting pregnant, more and more girls were getting kicked out of schools because a policy that then had been put in place by the government of Sierra Leone was visibly pregnant girls being kicked out of schools. But these girls would never come back to school. And and that simply meant an end to their life. They could not access activities that would, would economically empower them. They could not access work. And, and many of them would end up back in the cycle of poverty or even within sexual exploitation as a result of that. And so we couldn't but intervene. We couldn't but engage with the situation. Well, that was obviously a huge problem, 11 to 14,000 girls that we know about. And there's probably others that we we don't know about who's basically victims of disruption, unrest and violence, having their life script ended for them 
because of their pregnancy. Can you say something about why the government of Sierra Leone thought that the law expelling pregnant girls from school was something that they should do? What, what were um, their motivations? Oh, this this was quite sad. And and so even before I speak to the motivation of the government, let me speak to the circumstances under which the girls got pregnant in the first instance. The girls we interacted with um, and we were there programmatically included girls who'd been raped in the home context. Um, and so because girls are not were not in schools and were within the communities, they fell prey to people within the community who would violate these girls. Again, remember, in the context of COVID, we had children-led households because, you know, caregivers or parents and guardians had died extensively, having gone out, you know, to fend and get food and so on for their families. And so it would, became the turn of this young girl to then now provide for their families. And as they left their houses, they too would fall victim either to sexual violence or would engage in transactional sex to provide for their own families with adults. So again, once again, being sexually exploited under these circumstances. And so when we now speak about the government's response to this, it was quite appalling that the government would then say that these girls would provide a, a negative example in school um, because they would present as girls who had loose morals and therefore had engaged, um, you know, sexually as as if a girl of 10 or 11 would even have the capacity to consent to a sexual relation with an adult for purposes of providing for their own family. And so the government's response was both arbitrary and, and, and mostly knee-jack, if not just, you know, patriarchal to say, let's put a plaster on this. We've got 14,000 girls plus or, or thereabouts who are, who are pregnant we need to put a stop to it. And so the best thing to do is to punish the girls who get pregnant by kicking them out of school. And therefore, the girls then who are not pregnant will, will be compelled not to get pregnant, you know, as though it was a choice in the first instance. The pressure from the government was enough to make the other girls and the other kids within the school to ostracize these girls as being pregnant as and therefore not being worthy of school. And therefore, you're the bad girls. And so that was the attitude then that was carried out, including by the other kids in school. And our engagement, no matter how hard with the, with the, with the government, the, the only yielding that they did is that they ended up saying that they would set up, and indeed in some instances, instances not with their own money, with donor money, would set up schools which fell short of schools in at any level so that firstly these schools did not provide the full curriculum that was available in in ordinary schools to these girls and so that it would be two to three units for, for the girls to learn and it would also be two to three days a week um, secondly social amenities were completely unavailable and in some instances there were no toilets or bathrooms for the girls to be able to go to and most of these schools hired untrained teachers to be the ones to teach the students who were not tied to any given code. And so some of them would indeed engage in pu being perpetrators or sexual violators of these girls in the first instance. I mean, it was ridiculous to say the least, especially because coming from the context of war, where sexual violence had already been rampant in the country, discussions had been going on pre-Ebola um, to try and address the rise in numbers of pregnant girls in schools, majority of whom had been victims of sexual violence. And so the reasoning or the logic behind it was, was quite warped in our view and flew in the face of the rights of these girls not to be discriminated against. I mean, it's really hard to fathom that the government would have thought that that was a good idea. And it's really wonderful that you stepped in 
to give us a bit of a picture of what life was like for these girls, were there any supports either from the societal supports for them, community supports for them, school or other areas of government that might have stepped in to help them? They are. So let's begin with the society because therein lies, you know, a story of hope. We had local organisations such as the one that we filed the case with at the ECOWAS Court, Women Against Violence and Exploitation in Society, WAVES, who worked quite closely with us. And its its director, wonderful woman called Hannah Yambasu, took this personally. And this particular instance sticks in my mind. There's a girl who was absolutely brilliant and unfortunately got pregnant and was going definitely to be kicked out of school. And so Hannah simply took her to the local tailor and had her uh, make a, you know, a big school tunic for her, a school uniform for her that would, would sort of hide the pregnancy. And as the pregnancy progressed, Hannah got a bigger and bigger <laughs> uniform for this girl. And, and this girl actually finished school and did her basic certificate and, and excelled and did exceptionally well and wound up in high school, which was amazing. And so there were stories such as these across, whether it's in Bo province or Kenema, and, and not just within Freetown, far out within the provinces as well, where we had local organizations that took their time to just rescue individually girls and try to contribute a drop in the ocean, if you will. Within the international organizations as well, we had partners, including Amnesty International, including UNICEF, who did the data collection. And so, for example, for us as an institution, we work with girls clubs through our partners and know 10 or 15 girls who've been kicked out in each of the schools that we engage with. But then we have then organizations that undertook massive research and could therefore document the numbers, the sheer numbers of girls who are being turned away and were never coming back. And also following up the kinds of lives that these girls wound up in, some in prostitution, because once they would be pregnant, then they would be deemed not fit for use within the society. And there'd be no other means of, of you know, acquiring resources or economic resources or empowerment of any kind. And so having that as data was critical to us to leverage a case, even before we went to court, to the government, to show that this was basically cutting cutting their noses to spite their faces. I mean, they were, they were literally destroying their own society because these young girls are their society. I think what certainly determined our going to court was once the regime that was in power that had actually instituted the ban had lapsed and a new government took office. They continued with the ban, even though they are not the ones who initiated the ban, despite our writing to them severally and our engaging with them severally on the issue. And so for us, it was a no-brainer. We, we had to go to court. It's just very inspiring to hear what you did and to learn about women like Hannah. I mean, I wish there were a Nobel Prize for the heroes like that who, you know, we know exist. And, and when you think of these girls, they were still children, the children having to navigate such a difficult situation. I'm very interested in the way that Equality Now works. You have a wonderful way of working, which is in, in effect a three-legged stool, the legs of the stool being litigation, advocacy, and community awareness. Could you explain to us, you know, how these all fit together in this particular example of Sierra Leone and how the work of, and the analyses of those three legs of your store led you to the decision that the best place to fight this was through the ECOWAS structure? 
you speak like a true Equality Now uh, member. <laughs> uh, indeed, we do work um, using a tripartite methodology, if you will, because the challenges that we, we address call for that kind of an approach. By that, I mean we either address harmful practices that are being visited on women and girls. That's, you know, FGM, child marriage. We address sexual violence. We address equality in law and we address sexual exploitation or sexual trafficking, if you will. All of these things are not just rooted in an illegal practice, which can simply be wished away or rubbed off by the existing of a legal framework, but they speak to a deeper root. They speak to the norms, they speak to our socialization, they speak to the way of our thinking, our knowledge, our practices. And if we are to win this war, we cannot just win the battle in court or in statutes or in laws. We've got to win the hearts and minds of those that we are working with. We've got to get them to understand that what they're doing is not only destroying these girls, but destroying their entire societies and communities. And so for Sierra Leone, the issue was sexual violence and, shall we say, sexual violence against adolescent girls that resulted in discrimination and their lack of access to education and simply perpetuated that cycle over and over again. And so we had to engage with the community to ensure that we address the norms that inform, you know, a community that would support their government when the government said girls shouldn't be in school. And so we did that through engaging directly within the community through community dialogues so that on market days or where people are convening within the society, you open up for discussions and have people ask them questions that they wouldn't necessarily allow to see the lights of day and begin engaging with them in these discussions through ourselves and our partners and just completely deconstruct the understanding of their issues, have a values clarification, if you will, get them to understand women and girls as human beings and that rights are not 10 balls in a bucket, that if women get seven, then men only get three to contend with, but that everybody is born inherently with rights and to enable all of us achieve and realize our rights and then the society is built upon that and so getting that discussion done in a safe environment we do that also in schools so our partners have established what we call girls clubs in in the school that they work in and in these girls clubs we teach girls their rights we teach them resilience we in essence get them to walk with their heads up tall and it's through these girls clubs in fact the cases that we ended up submitting to the ECOWAS court some of them emerged from the girls clubs because some of the girls who would attend and were violated there's one I have in mind, a very, very sad story, a girl called Fante, and she she was violated. Her parents died because of the Ebola crisis. She moved in with an aunt and while fetching firewood, got raped, got pregnant, got kicked out of school. She was too young to carry the pregnancy to term by by ninth month um, was a stillbirth and still couldn't come back to school on account of the stigma of society. I mean, it's it is harrowing. And should you meet her? She's she's the picture of warmth. She's the picture of she's the future. You know, you, you couldn't possibly imagine the harrowing experience that she's gone through. And so to to have such girls have a safe space within schools where they have their capacity built, where they have their rights built, where they get to understand themselves, get gain confidence and understand the options available to them. And those girls clubs enable girls, even those who, yes, have gone pregnant through what the government would say transactional sex, know that you are worthy and you could step up and step into society and, and be something. 
But the third thing within that also is that we amplify the voices of these girls um, by capturing them in their raw format and either transcribing them into, into writings and holding a gallery where we invite government actors to come and engage with the statements and the questions and just this the discussions by these kids. And after we won the case, I will say, when we invited government officials from Ministry of Education, from Social Affairs to come in and they read some of these questions by these little girls, you know, a 12 year old asking why a teacher would want to have sex with her and asking it in in, I mean, I'm, I'm even sanitizing the language, just in the exact format in which the kids had asked us. And it is in this space that the ministry officials then cannot say that that 10-year-old girl has loose morals and therefore should not be in school. It's in this space that then we were able to make headways, if you will, because then it was not just about a case. It was about surely this 10-year-old deserves an education. Surely this 11-year-old deserves an education. Surely we need to be protecting this girl from being violated in the first instance, rather than waiting at the bottom of the river to, to dam the river, as opposed to stopping it right up at the top and making sure that she's not violated in the first instance. So that is our communications of the work that allows us just to amplify voices of survivors, engage directly with the community and so on towards sort of norm change. Our second pillar, as you rightfully put, is, is a legal advocacy pillar. Majority of us in-house are either lawyers or have a legal background. And so it's important then that we use the law to propound everything that we are saying, that these girls are claiming their rights as of rights um, and not because, you know, the government can give it to them or take it away as at whim. And so we then either litigate, as we did with this instance, or we actually directly engage with government actors and let them know this is what the law says and this is how you could best use it. Mm. And if it's an issue of capacity, we build capacity or we actually build capacity of civil society to engage with the state in their own country. Before any given case, any litigation that we file, human rights lit litigation that we file or strategic case that we file, we undertake what we call a litigation surgery. Um, we've adopted the word surgery, <laughs> which is just to tear, tear apart limb, limb for limb the details of the case and figure out what will work in the best interest of, of the girls or in the best interest to ensure we move the dial on the case. In this instance, the ECOWAS court is born of an economic block, the economic um, community of West African states. And in fact, before the ECOWAS court had jurisdiction on human rights cases, um, it needed to actually pass an extension or shall we say an augmentation of its existing policy to allow it to address human rights cases. But the beauty of that is that the Western African countries in, the, in that community are keen to be a part of that community because of the economic benefits that they accrue from that partnership. And so decisions from the ECOWAS court are well taken and are most often than not complied with by all the countries. And so when we mapped out where it is we could take the, the, the case, the ECOWAS court listed highest because we knew that compliance was at its highest. But also strategically, the Equus Court is based in West Africa, and so it's not too far out that it's a decision being rendered in Europe or in East Africa, for that matter. And so people would feel that it's a decision we can ignore uh, without consequence. It's something that is so close to home that the shame of your government not complying with a decision of your community then is one that can be enforced or entrenched locally. And so strategically, it also allowed us to play that dynamic that not only are they a member of a community that they want to comply with for, for the benefits that they get, get from it, but secondly, 
it's their community. It's a West African community. And so a decision from that court um, is one that is held in high regard. And then the third is it's just a broad advocacy, which is enabling different actors, civil society, community members, everybody within the community to just understand the issues and engage with them. So in that tripartite fashion, we try to address holistically the challenge that, that is faced in any given community. And for Sierra Leone, it was sexual violence that had resulted in girls being denied their right to education and a failure on, on the part of the state to even provide sexual and reproductive health and rights to prevent and preempt this violation in the first instance. Thank you, Judy. I mean, I am just filled with awe at your approach, which is not only inspiring, but it's so sensible and so practical and, um, and obviously very effective. And when you think of what that girl Fante suffered, and there are many others like her, that you've given her a safe space and you've given her the realization that she's not alone. And, and the other point I'd like to make is these girls are so young, they're still children. They're so young, this could happen again to them if they are protected. We use the term transactional sex, but these children were just trying to put food on the table for their families. So it's just so incredibly inspiring that you are helping those who have no voice. You mentioned that during your work, the government of, of Sierra Leone changed, but the incoming government didn't change the law um, at first. Were there any parts of the new government that appeared to you to be receptive to what Equality Now was trying to do, that gave an opportunity to reinforce the work of your three-legged stool. Yes, yes, indeed, there was. I mean, the Ministry of Education was quite progressive and did listen, gave, gave us an opportunity and gave our partners on the ground an opportunity to engage with them and meet with them and present the need to protect girls and indeed all children within schools from sexual violence. And we began a discussion. And whilst I felt that at that point didn't have the authority to, to make an arbitrary decision to have the ban lifted, what that resulted in is when we did win the case in court, it provided a soft landing when we came back to, again, reinitiate the discussions. Um, and also just to, to quickly also add that as soon as the case was won, within a day or two, because the court is in Abuja and we were, we, we were yet to depart from Abuja, an announcement was made from Freetown by, by the government that they've received the decision well and they will abide by the decision, which was you know, a tremendous relief. Beyond that, when we did eventually make our way back to Freetown to have that discussion, the government then proceeded to make proposals of two kinds, two policies. One, they referred to as radical inclusion, which said everybody then would have a right to education and be included. Because we fought off the notion that they needed to set up a parallel academic institution, uh, because some of their defense is that pregnant girls would be unable to attend school, they, they would need to be coddled and so on. And yet the parallel system that they set did far from coddle anybody because they first had untrained teachers. Some of them did not have social amenities such as toilets or bathrooms. The schools were running for two and a half days, um, if I recall correctly, and not affording or providing the full gamut of units or modules. And so you'd be subjected to a certain number of units, which would be you know, at the mercy of whoever was available to teach it. And so we rejected that in totality. And so when they made a commitment to put in a policy on radical inclusion, meaning everybody gets the right to education, including pregnant girls, that was 
brilliant and invited ourselves and our partners on the table in sort of building this policy from the ground up. And then the second policy was one on, on protection because it was an acknowledgement that we are here at this stage with pregnant girls because of the failure on the part of the state to protect these girls from sexual violence in the first instance. And so these two policies were the out outcome of that. And was as a result, if if I may be candid to say, of the open dialogue that had been there, particularly with the Ministry of Education and a few actors within government who made their office available just for dialogue to take place. And, and they are also the unsung heroes of this too. Yeah. So there's always, along with, with all the bad stuff, there's always some good stuff that goes on in, in these situations. Indeed. Um, um, I know from looking at your excellent website, uh, I, it really is a wonderful website, and I urge anyone listening to this podcast to look at your website, that Equality Now works in many different countries. And um, I'd like to ask you a question about related work that you have been doing in Tanzania, far away from Sierra Leone, that has an even more severe law against pregnant girls in school. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work in Tanzania and what, if any, crossover lessons there are between the Tanzanian situation and the situation in Sierra Leone? Oh, oh, Tanzania is heartbreaking and the lessons are numerous and not just exclusively with regard to the pregnancy ban and our strategy for it, but also the similarities that are now drawn between the Ebola pandemic and the COVID-19 pandemic that is running parallel at the moment. So with Tanzania, they too. Uh, issued a ban about three and a half years ago now, where they, they not only banned girls during the term of their pregnancy, which was the issue in, in Sierra Leone, but for them, the declaration was loud and clear that as long as you got pregnant, you could never come back to school. And the sad part about that particular provision, whilst it was provided for in their statutes, in a conglomerate of different statutes here and there, where they would ban children from girls from school on account of what they would call um, immoral behavior, and then it would be up to the school to determine what that immoral behavior would be. The president at the time in Tanzania actually took to a podium to clarify and emphasize that position and indicate, and he said in, in Kiswahili that it doesn't matter how it is you got pregnant. Kiswahili is is, is, a, is is quite lyrical and so has a lot of euphemism, but it's clear for everybody to, to understand. And, and he would say, if you got pregnant out of pleasure or out of a mistake, um, in a sense, indicating whether you were raped or you were willing, um, he said, it doesn't matter. My government doesn't pay uh, for, for parents to attend school. It pays for, for children. And so once you're a parent, you have no right to be in school. And implementation, therefore, was swift and effective and was done across all public schools, which already begins to tell you the demographic of the girls who would suffer, because it would mean it's parents who can only afford public school whose kids would suffer. But to give you a context in Tanzania is to say that their legal framework in and of itself provides for girls not just to be violated, but sort of entrenches a culture of violation. And for, by that, I'll tell you that until last year, they did have a law providing that whilst boys get married at 18, age of marriage is 18, girls can get married at 15 and with the consent of the court at the age of 14, 
And therefore, you already find that girls are being pushed or, or cultured towards get married as a child, get married young. And as soon as you're pregnant, then the school kicks you out on account of immorality because you're pregnant and you're a parent and therefore you shouldn't be in school in the first instance. And so a hodgepodge of laws of this kind that give with one hand and take with the other, just entrenching a culture where the girl really has no hope in, in, in a given society. It's a mess. And very much like Sierra Leone, we, we did engage did write, did speak to the highest authority. And the more we were loud about it, unfortunately, unlike in Sierra Leone, the more the government was not only reticent, but in some instances, chose to even prosecute the girls themselves for having gotten pregnant in the first instance. I know you ask, how can you prosecute somebody? But they did find a cause because the Children's Act or the Educations Act did provide it as an illegality for for an adult to have sexual relations with a student. And so they arrested the girls and their parents so that the girls and their parents would provide who it is that had gotten the girls pregnant. And this was when we were now agitating and going on media and getting the voices of the girls covered in media and so on. And so we went back to the drawing board um, and we were thinking about it. And much like the lessons we were drawing from Sierra Leone, we had to have a similar thinking for Tanzania and, and establish which court then could we bring our matter to that would force the government of Tanzania to comply. And for us, that court was now the African court. The reason is it's hosted in Tanzania, in Arusha. And as a result, the government of Tanzania has given the right to, to citizens and to non-governmental organizations to bring cases against the government because it's hosted within Tanzania and it's, it's there for good practice and so on and so forth. And so, again, a strategy thinking, just mirroring what we did in, in Sierra Leone, which is the best venue for this. How do we protect the girls? How do we make sure that we don't expose them in the court process, that we can bring their voices as evidence, but we can make sure that they're covered and the government can't, you know, expose or, you know, shall we say, retaliate after the matter. And so we're in court in, at the African court, we filed the case against the government of Tanzania. Um, and so the case is ongoing. And we are happy to say that there's been progress, even though the decision hasn't been made yet, in that the African court has actually invited amicus curiae applications from strategic actors. Um, and we were very, very excited about it, being organizations within Tanzania, being special rapporteurs and different actors to join our case and make a case for the girl. But just a quick one, Sarah, just in terms of the parallels drawn, and you, you, you said something critical. You said that the girls that I talked about are very young, and yes, Fante at the time of being violated was 11. And even now, years after we filed the case, been to their course court, because everybody might assume that Ebola 2014 and therefore decision 2015 and done. We got the decision in 2019. And 2020, we had COVID and we have closure again. We have schools closed again. We have restriction of movement and so on in an environment quite similar to what happened in the Ebola crisis. Although at least with Sierra Leone, they did learn from there. And so we already had our monitors up and were ready for that. But this same scenario was playing out in Tanzania as well and playing out in many of the countries that we work in where schools now are closed. So beyond the cohort that we're seeking to protect there are now even more girls at risk, even more girls being violated, even more girls therefore getting pregnant. And now in the case of Tanzania, never being able to go back to school until we get an overturning of this decision. You know, your work in Tanzania is also extremely uh, inspiring. 
And you think of now the COVID situation, obviously we're going to rely ever more on Equality Now's work and, and your partners to really monitor this situation carefully because you know the slow rollout of vaccines, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, means that this is going to be a challenge for at least another year or perhaps two. I wonder if we might go back to Sierra Leone and if you have anything to share with us about the goals that you have helped there. And I realize COVID has hit and it makes their story a bit more complicated. But do you have any updates on how these girls who were pregnant, who were thrown out of school that you helped, what has happened to them in the last year or so? Let me let me start with well, Sierra Leone is a is a good story, and there, there's such few of these that when it happens, we we celebrate it for a long time. So it's a good story for for this reason that as soon as the ban was lifted in that very year, that was 2019, all the girls who were pregnant in that year were allowed back in school. So even before we talk about the cohort who were at the heart of the case, that's what those girls who were at the heart of the case did for the bigger community which is the girls went back in school, the girls sat their exams. And when we traveled there in, in March, and it was, it, was, it was absolutely exciting to see. And the thing that brought it home was us being able to bring back the case to the, the few girls who are at the heart of the case and just bring them together in the room and present the fact that they'd defeated their own government. They who thought there were nothing or, you know, I'm just 11 or I'm out of school. Um, my parents are are dead. I have I have no future, and come back and say you see your name in the pleadings, you see you see what the outcome is, and just seeing the smile. Two of them have managed to go back to school out of the of, out of the list that were part of the heart of the case. Two of them have managed to go back to school. One of them actually intends to become a lawyer, so we're happy we've done some inspiration there. <laughs> and so you know, very exciting to see. Uh, that they, that they want to plug back and want to be a part of the community. In terms of the impact, the bigger impact on the community, it opened up the space for discussion. It did, and in that tripartite um, strategy that we we're telling you about, uh, or methodology that we we're telling you about, we map out the media or medium that is most used in a given country. And for Sierra Leone, it was WhatsApp and Facebook. And so, just beginning those discussions on WhatsApp and Facebook caused it to go you know, rife across, it, it was wildfire across the country and people being able to engage with it as an issue and finally being able to see the need for girls to go back to school. And so whilst we haven't worn completely, we, we can honestly say we've seen a, a change in the tide and we're having more and more people supporting the need for girls to come back to school. And we're seeing also directly support, including from the office of the First Lady, um, who now is engaging with questions to do with sexual violence and that being directly addressed by the office of the president as a result of that. Um, and so even before the case was over, Sierra Leone declared you know, a state of emergency with regards to sexual violence, especially against minors, reviewing the laws and then once the case was won incorporating our partners no less um, the civil society actors that we worked with in the case to help in the drafting of the policy for protecting girls against sexual violence and to help in the drafting of the policy for radical inclusion and so it's a full circle if you will from the girls themselves to the policies and then to the attitude um, and so 
we haven't won. I cannot say we have because you will jump into a taxi and start the conversation in Freetown and, and still have someone say, oh, but surely. But then at the same time, you will be in the marketplace and then you overhear a conversation that makes you think, ah, we've made progress. And so there's, there's a change. And for us, that's what matters. We can see change. It is just wonderful to listen to you. And, you know, clearly radical inclusion is never over. It takes time. And, you know, you clearly have made enormous strides in changing hearts and minds and the underlying cultural norms that will enable radical inclusion to take root. On behalf of Amplify Change, we feel very honored to be able to help you with your work. Could you say uh, just a few words about how your grant from Amplify Change helped with your work in Sierra Leone? Oh, I mean, the grant was everything. Um, we had the passion to to do work in Sierra Leone, but then remember, it was at the height of, of Ebola or right after Ebola. And so Amplify Change took a gamble and believed that we'd be able to get in, despite you know the restrictions at the time, get to the girls in the provinces and get the actual cases. And also, I think, critical is just as it sounds, it, it did amplify not just the change, but amplify the voices of the girls themselves. Throughout this process, you get to hear the lawyers, you get to hear us as program people in civil society, but throughout the process, it's, it's rare to hear the girls in their own voices. And so what Amplify Change Support helped us do is capture the voices of the girls as the voices of the girls. And so, like I said, we would quote verbatim, we would get it as is and just write it out and then set, lay out a gallery and just invite people to walk in and just read for themselves and they would recognize the tone they would recognize the lingo they would use the, the local dialect and so they would they would know that it's not us creating it would be it would be actual language and so just to have the privilege really the privilege of of hearing the the kids in the room with us shaping the policy shaping the protection mechanisms and shape, shaping the, shall we say, the structures that need to be put in place. That for us was, was a tremendous privilege and that's what this program afforded us. It enabled us to put the girls at the heart of the project. Thank you very much, Judy. This has been a wonderful conversation. I will take advantage of being the interviewer to end on a personal note, if you'll forgive me. I was looking at your website with my two little granddaughters, one, turned 10 last week and the other will turn 13 next month and they said grandma instead of giving our birthday money to us could you please give it to oh. equality now and so we are in in the process for them to make their very first charitable donation and they're so excited about it and also as young girls in, living in a very different situation finding so much inspiration from your work. So thank you very much, Judy, and, and thank Equality Now for all their wonderful work. Thank you, Sarah, and, and my personal thanks to your granddaughters. They're, they're making a change more than they know. They, they really are. I'll let them know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>